Well, open your Bibles to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. The very last book in your Bible. I can remember at the first church that I was pastoring, actually the one right before here. We were on a Sunday night, and I made a comment like that, the last book of your Bible, and just jokingly said, uh, I won't mention her name, but there was a woman. I said, that's in the New Testament, not the Old Testament, and just went right on, just kind of teasing everybody, chuckled, and... uh, Whenever I got home, her husband gave me a phone call. We were dear friends. And uh, he said, her name, um, he said, you probably don't know this, but she has struggled her whole life trying to remember where things were in the Bible. And um, and you, you hurt her deeply. So I got in the car and immediately drove over her house, sought her forgiveness, and was reminded in many words there is transgression. So you guys remember that, because I speak about 10,000 a Sunday, between Sunday morning and Sunday night. So if I say something wrong, obviously outside of getting the text wrong, then uh, remember in many words there is transgression. If I get the text wrong, then come to me, because I'd obviously want to know that. And we have in front of us probably one of the greatest books in the Bible. And sadly, it's not preached enough. We finally come in this book of Revelation to the glorious return of our Lord. And what immediately precedes that are four hallelujahs in heaven. Heaven always speaks before earth does. And in the introduction of Revelation 19, we find heaven filled with praise before this praiseworthy thing comes to pass on earth. There, there are many errors in Catholicism, but getting that, that out of order is, is probably one of the most significant. Catholic dogma teaches that the church has the power to bind things on earth, and then heaven follows. Um, that declaration is carried out in heaven. That's the whole idea of the Pope can assign an indulgence and draw down from heaven the treasury of merits. The Pope declares something on earth, and then heaven has to follow that declaration. They take that from Matthew 16, where Jesus gives Peter the keys of the the kingdom. And this obviously is what drove Luther nuts and uh, caused him to uh, begin the Reformation. They take Matthew 18, where Jesus says, Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. But the original language is very particular. It's in the perfect tense. Meaning, it's something already bound in the past and stands that way forever. So, Jesus is saying to Peter, Whatever stands bound in heaven, that you declare bound on earth. It's not the other way around. Peter of the church does not have autonomous authority. Heaven doesn't follow the church, the church follows heaven, and heaven's truth and heaven's directives are mediated through the Word of God. Peter, me, anyone else is simply to declare what heaven has already established, and Revelation 19 gets that pattern right. It begins in heaven and then is played out on the earth. And so in Revelation 19, heaven is declaring what has already been established and is about to come on the earth. Jesus will come. 
He'll wipe out his enemies and he'll bring his millennial kingdom and then eternal kingdom. And heaven is filled with praise before the earth is. Actually, the earth is filled with woe. Chapter 19 has already been introduced. Look, if you would, at Revelation 18:20. Here's the introduction to Revelation 19. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Here's the, the invitation given in verse 20 of chapter 18 to rejoice, for heaven to rejoice. And chapter 19 is that response. While the earth is crying, woe, woe, over the destruction of the Antichrist empire, heaven is called to rejoice over its judgment. And chapter 19 begins with that response. And so the scene transports us for the next ten verses to heaven. It's the last of the seven visions in heaven in Revelation. And the last thing we see before the Lord Jesus Christ splits the sky. And all of history builds up to this. The earth groans under the under the converse under the curse, being in travail. It's waiting for this day. The saints watch and wait for this event, and it's when the Lord will come back, and He takes back the earth from the usurper Satan, judges all rebels, and sets up His kingdom, where He will rule and reign. And what a day that will be! There, the first. Ten verses, actually they're all found in the, the first six, contains four hallelujahs from, a, from each from a different group represented in heaven. Look, if you would, at verse 1. And it says, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. So we're told specifically where we're at. We're in heaven. Hallelujah. Here's the first one. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because of His judgments, because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time, here's the second one. The second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne. Here's the third one. Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, here's the fourth one, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are true words, the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, do not do that. I am a fellow slave of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus and worship God. 
For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, we covered the first three hallelujahs the last time. We'll look at the, the last one tonight. And the first one is for God's deliverance of the saints. It's the first reason. First hallelujah, the reason it's given is for God's deliverance of the, of the saints. Look, if you would again in verse 1, they're praising Him. Hallelujah, salvation, for the salvation and glory and honor and power that belongs to to Him. And since chapter 4, what's been going on in heaven is ceaseless worship of the elders and the 24 hours. You, we get transported into the throne room in chapter 4, before that, that great scene where you know uh, heaven is, is searched and there's none found worthy, but then there's, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... And the four, uh, the four creatures and the twenty-four elders are falling down before the Lord, crying, "Worthy, worthy!" Ceaseless worship's been going on for all eternity, and we get to see that picture in chapter four. Well, what's going on in heaven after the judgments fall, after the seals are unfurled, and and the wrath of God is poured out on the earth? Now we go back to heaven, and we find that same worship is still taking place after the judgments. There's still praise and honor and worship to the one on the throne. But now hallelujah, as we said, is added to that praise. And what is getting ready to come is the reign of Christ, His righteousness and justice and peace. And that brings the hallelujah for the destruction of evil. If you would at verse 3, here's the second one. A second time they said hallelujah. Why? Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Who's her? Well, that's, that's the, the, uh, the woman, Babylon, both the Antichrist false religion and false system. The same group in heaven, but this time they say praise the Lord for a different reason. It's for God's permanent destruction of evil. He's already destroyed it on the earth, but look at what this says. It rises up forever and ever. That's eternal smoke. That's smoke from the lake of fire. So that's the praise. Throughout all eternity, there will be a reminder of God's permanent destruction of, of evil. Don't you long for that day? I long for that day. And heaven is a reminder of God's grace, His graciousness, and hell is a reminder that God is just. And the 24 elders throw in their praise and they agree and so the third hallelujah is for God's divine redemption. Verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits upon the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Now we already saw these creatures and these elders in chapter 4. The four creatures are the holy angels that protect, if you will, God's holiness. They're closest to the throne. And the 24 elders can be identified by their attire. Now, their, their dress is not delineated here, but it is described in chapter 4. They have a white garment and they wear a victor's crown. And Jesus just told the the Laodiceans, right before that, in the seven letters, to buy from me a white garment so that you may cover your spiritual nakedness. And the crown that they wore, or that they wear, is a, is a, is a, is a unique word. It's a stephanos. It's not a diadem. We sing the, we sing the song, you know, crown him with many crowns. We talk about a diadem. This is a, 
This is a wreath, a crowned wreath that's given to victors. And so Jesus promises the crown to the loyal believers in Smyrna. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. I'll give you the Stephanus of life. And so the number of 24 comes from the priesthood serving in the heavenly temple. So you have, here's all of the saints that represent the totality of God's redemption singing this hallelujah in heaven. They've overcome, they've been made righteous, they've been given righteous garments by Christ. They've overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're serving in the very presence of God. And so they give hallelujah for God's divine redemption. And both of these groups add, they add their affirmation and they say, Amen. Hallelujah. Amen, I agree. His justice and deliverance is right. Praise the Lord for His redemption. God's plan from the ages is seen fulfilled in heaven and it's about to be fulfilled on earth. And so the elders rejoice. But the last hallelujah is for us. And it is hallelujah for God's devotion to His church. Now you're up to speed. And now we get to press the accelerator down. Look, if you would, at verse 5. There are four responses between chapter 5, uh, sorry, verse 5 and verse 10 that really help you understand this hallelujah for this devotion, God's devotion to His church. Did you know that Jesus is devoted to His church? He is. And if you're part of His church, He's devoted to you. It's not just a personal salvation. Of course it is. No person can pluck you from the Father's hand. But Jesus shed His blood for His church. He loves His church. He protects His church. He's devoted to His church. And He has a future for His church. And the first thing that will help you understand this devotion is what they praise Him for. Look at verse 5. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God. All you bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. So to notice that the, the scope of praise has, has widened. It's no longer just the four elders, or just the four creatures and the 24 elders. Now it's all who fear him, small and great. And what are they to praise him for? These are the martyred saints from the tribulation. They've already spoken. The elders and the angels have spoken. Now all of heaven and earth, small and great, is to give praise. And it's in the present tense. Keep on praising Him. And they do. And that's what you find in verse 6. Here's the praise. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. The praise is deafening. It's like waves crashing. Have you ever stood beside a really, really big waterfall? No, I've never been to Niagara Falls. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? A bunch of you. If you stood beside it, it's, it's deafening, I hear. It's just, you can't hear anything. That's what this praise sounds like in heaven. It sounds like waves crashing. It sounds like, sounds like thunder booming. And look at what they're saying at, at that velocity. They're saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God our Almighty reigns. He is the Lord God Almighty. That's used nine times in Revelation. It means He's omnipotent and that He's sovereign. He has all power. He's in absolute control. And they're rejoicing because He's about to take back His rule. 
He never ceased to be in control. He never ceased to have control over the earth. You don't believe that? Just go to the book of Job, where Satan comes from the earth, and he has to receive God's permission to be able to do anything to a saint on the earth. Look at who's going to be reigning with him. Verse 7. That's the second. What they praise him for and what we're to rejoice about. Let us, watch the change, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Why? For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Let us rejoice and be glad. Us is the entire multitude, all the redeemed, and clearly the church right now. And why are we to rejoice? Two reasons. Because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, number one. And number two, because his wife or his bride has made herself ready. Do you see that? It's right there in the text. This is wedding imagery. Now, I don't know. I've done a lot of weddings. Um, I have no idea how many. And it seems to me, this is just a human observation, there are two things that men don't enjoy doing. Number one is getting their picture taken. Do you enjoy getting your family portrait made? I don't enjoy that. And number two, it doesn't seem like guys enjoy weddings as much as women do. Now, that's just an observation. I could be wrong. And if you like weddings, then more power to you. That's wonderful. But whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, you're going to enjoy this wedding if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Jewish weddings consisted of three stages. We get some of the things that we do from uh, the Jewish wedding, the background, and also from Roman, the ring, and all of that type of stuff. And you've heard this before, I'm sure, but it's important to go over it again. Jewish weddings consisted of three stages. There was the betrothal. That's when the agreement was made and a payment was made for a future marriage. It was, it was an arrangement made, typically between the parents. An agreement was made. Johnny's going to marry Susie. Okay, we'll work that out. And you're going to pay. You're going to have a dowry. You're going to be some down payment. And that's going to be given to the father of the, of the bride-to-be. And there was a contract that was made. And they were treated like a married couple, even though they hadn't said the vows yet. That was the first phase, betrothal. The second phase was a procession and then a ceremony where the bridegroom comes from the father's house to wherever the betrothed bride was. He gets her in a, in a big procession and, and, and then they celebrate all the way back to where they're going to, the father's house where they're going to give the vows. He brings the, the bride to be and celebrations ensue and that lasts for several days. And then that included the vows. The final phase was the consummation supper. It was, it was a feast that was at the end, typically in the evening. And once they'd reached the groom's father's house, they had a marriage supper and they invited guests to this supper. And at the end, somewhere in the middle of the celebrations and the feast, the vows have already been, have already taken place. Trolls obviously already happened. While everybody's celebrating, the bride and the groom disappear and they slip off and they begin to live together from that point forward. The celebrations could last several more days after that and they would be with the family and with the friends and with the invited guests and, 
and they would be rejoicing for the couple. The couple wouldn't be there, and and um, obviously that night, and then they would come back into the picture, and it was very festive. And Jesus uses this imagery in the New Testament, doesn't he? Where does he use it? Well, he kind of unfolds it in phases. Mark chapter 2, notice how early this is, when the rulers questioned uh, questioned Jesus and his disciples why he wasn't making them keep the traditional fast. These were not fasts that are found in the Old Testament. These were the added fasts that the, the scribes and the Pharisees had placed there in order for to, to gain extra righteousness. And whenever they rebuke Jesus, Jesus says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Who's he talking about? He's the bridegroom, right? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast in that day. So Jesus, obviously, is the bridegroom in that. You see that? My pastor said, nod your head, shake your fist at me, grunt, do something. Yes, you see that, right? All right. So Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, here's another very familiar one. Matthew 25, right? This is not all 18 verses, but the beginning. It's the parable of the virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven is like. The coming of the kingdom of heaven is going to be like this. It's going to be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. What's he talking about? This is phase two, isn't it? This is the procession. The bridegroom has left his father's house and he's bringing a big procession in his train and he's going to come to the bride's house and get her and he's going to, to they're going to make a big train and procession back to, to the celebration. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegrooms. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. There would be an announcement. The bridegroom has got everything ready and he's about to come. And so they knew the general time whenever the bridegroom was going to come, but they didn't know the specific hour. They didn't know exactly when he was going to be passing this way. So here's ten virgins that are invited to the wedding, and they go out, and they've got their lamps because it's going to happen. It could have happened during the day. It could happen at night. And five of them have oil, and five of them don't. You've heard this, this parable before many times. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil in them. But the wise took flasks of oil in their lamps, and as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And then you know the, the rest of the, of the story. The ones that had no oil were unprepared. And so put these two things together. The first one, Jesus is the bridegroom. And here, he's the bridegroom coming. He's bringing the kingdom, like when the, when the groom comes. So his bride, as his bride, you better be ready. You better have your lamp, and you better have your oil, because you don't want to miss that. So here's the bride and the coming, the bridegroom and the coming. Now, where's the bride? Well, it's in a very familiar passage of Scripture, so I want you to turn to John 14. You know this passage of Scripture. You probably many memorized this passage of Scripture. And you may know the wedding imagery here, but if not, here's where the bride is revealed. The bridegroom has been revealed. 
the fact that the bridegroom is coming for the bride is revealed. And now John 14 tells us who's the bride. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. This is wedding language. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, many mansions, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. What is he saying? Now, I understand. I love the song, too. I've got a mansion on the hilltop. But what this is saying is, whenever a couple got married, they usually went back to the father's estate. And once the betrothal was made, the groom-to-be would go back and make preparations during the betrothal period for the wife. He would build a room. He would... He would establish something on his father's property in order to be ready. Now, I'm a dad, and I've got two daughters. One of them is probably about ten years from marrying age. That'd be Olivia. (laughs) And then Isabella has got a much longer period of time for that. Now, if in ten years any of you men would like my daughter's hand in marriage, you better have a job... And you better be able to provide for, for, my, for my daughter, right? Well, the, the bridegroom goes back and prepares so he can be a good husband. And so he can, when he receives the bride, they have a place to live and, and all things are set. This is wedding imagery. And in my father's house, there, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. So the bridegroom... The bride has been betrothed and the bridegroom goes away to prepare. And if I go prepare a place for you in verse 3, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Hallelujah. Isn't that good stuff? The bridegroom is, is coming. What Jesus reveals, what he says... He's always used wedding language. He's the bridegroom, and so the guests can't fast when the celebration, when the bridegroom is there. It would be inappropriate to do that. He's the coming bridegroom, so you better be ready because you don't know the hour in which the bridegroom is going to pass and might be delayed. And now, in John 14, right before he goes to the cross, he uses wedding language again, and he reveals who the bride is. And the bride is the church. Jesus promises he is bound to his bride and he's going to return for her. And when he does, he'll take her to his father's house and they'll live together forever. Even the passage that we quote all the time in witnessing about Jesus being the only way has a wedding emphasis. Look if you would at verse 4. And you know the way where I'm going. Where's he going? My father's house. He's already said that. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going or, and how do we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And look at verse 7. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. If you'd been betrothed to a groom, you know the father of the groom. (laughs) The only way to get into the family and to live there was through the groom. And you wouldn't expect to be able to live with a stranger. But if you're married to someone, then 
your in-law's house was open to you as well. And if that wasn't plain enough, one more. Nope, I don't have it there. Ephesians 5. This same theme is carried on in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he may sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now put all that together. The Bible says a bride was betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. And Jesus gave His own life. He promised His own life in payment for her. He purchased her with His own blood on the cross. That blood becoming the offering for the covenant. And after securing His bride for all eternity, He has gone away to complete the preparations for the marriage celebration. And the bride, being the church, that's us, while we're waiting on the bridegroom to come, is making herself ready for that day. People are being added to in number, and those who are already part of the number are being made ready in sanctification. And when Jesus comes again, He'll come dressed in the splendor of a bridegroom, which we're getting ready to see, to receive His church and take her to His Father's house for the great wedding celebration called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And from that point, Christ and His bride will be together forever in undiminished joy. And that marriage celebration is about to take place. And so we are told to rejoice. Turn back to Revelation and look at verse 7. We're to rejoice. Because... The bridegroom is coming for the bride. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. It's upon us. And the second reason that we're to rejoice was because in verse, uh, was in verse 7, because the bride has made herself ready. Two parts to verse 7. Rejoice and be glad. Give glory to Him. One, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Two, His bride has made herself ready. Ready. Rejoice because his bride or his wife has made herself ready. Just like in weddings in our day, the bride gets prepared. Um, She doesn't show up in her old sweatpants to her wedding. But unlike in our day, the bride doesn't know when the groom has made the final preparations at the father's house... And he doesn't, she doesn't know when the final preparations are made to receive her. As I said, it, he typically prepares for that, and it's not an overnight thing. But once that is complete, word is sent to the bride's house. The bridegroom is about ready. Get yourself ready. He's almost here. He's, he's going to start the procession. He's going to come and get you. Did you know that's what Revelation is? It's the announcement. Right here it is. (laughs) The bridegroom is ready to come and get the bride. It's a notice to get ready because the groom is about to come. That's why they're rejoicing. And just like, as I said, no bride would, would show up in her pajamas on her wedding day. No Christian should be lacking the righteousness 
the righteous acts when Jesus comes. Think about that. If you lack righteousness in your life, practical righteousness, the works that follow your salvation when the Lord Jesus comes for His church, it's like being in your old sweatpants showing up for your, your wedding, or even worse. Look at how the bride makes herself ready in verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And what is the fine linen? Well, he tells us, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. There are two terms, or two ways the term righteousness is used in the New Testament. And they're related, but very different. And you don't want to confuse these. It's another area error of of Catholicism. The first righteousness you would call a, a passive righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's not righteousness that you earned. It's passive. It's alien, as the Reformers used to call it. It's, a, it's righteousness in God's eyes. It's the righteousness of faith. It's the righteousness of the gospel. It's it's our standing, the standing that we get before God because of Christ and Christ alone. Jesus was fully pleased the Father. He was totally righteous. He never sinned. And He earned the title righteous. He, he was righteous. And yet Romans tells us, how many of us are righteous? There are none righteous. He was completely righteous. We're None of us are righteous. So, how does God remedy that? Well, God remedies that by taking the righteousness of Christ and crediting that to our account, even though we're unrighteous. He treats us as if we are righteous, even though we're not, because of alien righteousness, passive righteousness, righteousness that we don't earn, righteousness that comes to us outside of ourselves, that comes to us through the worth and work of Jesus Christ. And at salvation, we're declared righteous by God. That's that word justification. We're declared righteous by God and treated based upon the righteousness of Christ. That's the first kind. That's not what he's talking about here. Because it says the righteous acts of the saints. The second way the Bible uses the term is used here. It's, it's active righteousness. It's the kind of righteousness that, is, that comes from character. It's righteousness that comes from works because it deals with a person's attitudes or, or behaviors. This is the one that we affect with our effort. It's empowered by the Spirit, yes, but it comes from our labor, which is why the Bible over and over uses terms like uh, labor to the point of exhaustion, strive, be a good soldier, be a hard-working farmer. Add to your faith, virtue, and, and Peter goes through the list. And when you come to Christ, you're given a new nature. And that new nature produces a new way of living and a new way of thinking and a new way of desiring. But then you strive in that. And as you obey and follow the Lord, what results is practical righteousness. That's sanctification. And the righteousness of Christ is what makes you part of the bride and the righteous acts that you're dressed in are the results of that union, which is what he's saying here. How does the bride, how does the church make herself ready for the coming of Christ? The outward results of inward virtue. While our work can't earn God's favor, 
Works are expected in the lives of believers. But even that was Christ's doing. Look at verse 8 again. We can't take any credit for it, although it's our effort. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. This is Ephesians 2.10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he has foreordained. And so here you have both of those put together. And with the church ready, the groom comes, and they start the evening meal. And John's told to write about it. And John's told to write about it. Now, it was working and jumped ahead three times before. Can you control it? All right. Well, you'll see it up there in a minute. Just listen. Here's the third key. It's what John is to write, what they praise him for, what we are to rejoice about, and what John is to write. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Now, don't miss this. In verse 8, there's the bride. You see that? The bride is clothing herself in fine linen. And in verse 9, they're guests, aren't they? You see that? There are two different groups there. The church is the bride, and the guests are those invited. Obviously not part of the church, because the church is the bride, right? So who are the guests? Well, it's pretty easy with the process of elimination. We know exactly, explicitly, who the bride is. We sell that from Jesus' words and also all through the New Testament. We know it's not the church. The guests are not the church. The church began at Pentecost. So there are those who were saved by faith before the church. There are those saved after the church is gone in the tribulation, tribulation saints. And then there's Israel, who's going to enter the kingdom after the coming of Christ. And so you have three groups, and they're part of the guests. And the guests are all the believers who have died before the church was called out, the tribulation saints. And since the celebration will last into the kingdom, it includes believing Jews. And the bride and the groom will live in bliss and rule and reign together for a thousand years, and then the new day will dawn when all the saints will gather around the Lamb in heaven. What did Jesus tell His disciples in the Passover meal? We're getting ready to see that next Sunday in Mark. What did Jesus tell them? He goes into a lot more detail in Matthew. In the Passover, Lord's Supper passage in in Matthew. I think it's Matthew 26. What did Jesus tell His disciples in the last Passover when He didn't drink the last cup? Do you remember? Matthew 26, verse 29. Listen to it. He doesn't drink the fourth cup, the final cup in the Passover. And He says this, But I say unto you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. 
That's celebration language. And that's a promise. The Lord is implying that He would not drink the fourth cup until the kingdom age. What do we do at the Lord's table? Why do we practice the Lord's Supper? What are we doing in the Lord's Supper? We practice the Lord's Supper reminding us that we are His body. The body and the blood of the, of the Lord. And we come the same way and we're together the same way. We practice it to remind ourselves that we're the bride of Christ and we became part of the bride because of, of the sacrifice of the Lord. And we do that. We proclaim the Lord's death. When? Until He comes. So how long do we do it? We do it until He comes. And once He comes, then we'll sit at His table as His bride in His Father's house, the place that He's prepared for us, the place that we couldn't get to without Him. And He will share in that fourth cup with us. And He will drink and celebrate in heaven for a thousand years as the bridegroom. And it will start in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the church is in heaven. And it will spill over into the thousand-year millennial reign. And this is the special place that God gives the church. The guests are everyone else. The bride is the church. And we're no better than Jews or tribulation saints. We both have come by, by grace alone and faith alone. But for a brief period in heaven and for a thousand years, we'll reign beside the bridegroom. And in the kingdom, we'll reign beside the bridegroom in a Jewish kingdom. Not as honored guests, but as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And John says these are true words. These are the true words of God, he says at the end of verse 9. And it's so overwhelming for this church-age saint, he falls down in worship before the angel who is declaring it. If you would, at verse 10. This is what all servants look for. Verse 10. And then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus and worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. An angel informs John what all servants look for. Whether you're an angel, whether you're an Old Testament saint, whether you're part of the bride, whether you're part of the guests, whether you're going to be part of the kingdom, all those who are faithful servants of God, this is what we all long for. This is our entire focus. The first thing he says, I mean, John is just overwhelmed. I'd be overwhelmed. And John falls down and begins to worship. And he says, don't worship me. I am your fellow servant. I can remember um, riding in a car with a lady one time. I don't remember who she was, relative or something, cousin, friend, I'm not sure. But she had one of these, these little things hanging from her, uh, her rearview mirror. And it was a little angel. It had wings and 
And that was, she informed me, that was her guardian angel. And she even prayed to this angel, talked to this angel. This angel watched over her. And and if I was more astute and knew my Bible better, I would have read this passage to her. But I didn't. I, I don't remember exactly what I said to her at that time. But the first thing that we see is the Bible forbids the worship of angels. The Bible forbids the... The praying to angels. Angels can't answer your prayers. <laughs> Only Jesus can. Saints in heaven can't answer your prayers. Only Jesus can. Jesus' mother can't answer your prayers. Only Jesus can. And so this angel does the right thing. He says, get up. Don't do that. The second thing he says is angels are servants like us. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us one of the ways that they minister. They're ministering spirits. Serving for the sake of those who inherit salvation. And so one of the things, one of the ways that angels serve, that serves the, the church. And the word used here for servant, is two words put together. It's syndulos. Doulos is the word for slave. A fellow slave is what he's saying. He's saying the angels are servants of Jesus. And we are servants of Jesus. And together, we're fellow slaves. Kind of elevates. We're not greater than the angels. The angels aren't greater than us. And why, in what way are we fellow servants? Well, he tells us right here in the passage, verse 10, Do not do that. I am a fellow slave, a slave of yours and of your brethren, who hold the testimony of Jesus and worship God. There are good angels and bad angels, aren't there? There are elect angels and fallen angels. And this is obviously one that holds to the testimony of Jesus and the worship of God. And that's because we all hold the testimony of Jesus and worship God. That's why we're fellow slaves. And, and he says, this is the spirit of prophecy. Look how he ends this. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of of prophecy. It's an objective genitive for you Greek eggheads. And Jesus Christ is the common thread of all prophecy, Old and New Testament. They both have this same theme. And Jesus is not found in every verse in the Bible, but every verse in the Bible links together and points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Old and New Testament have the exact same theme. The prophecy of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what the Bible has been saying from Genesis chapter 3? And all from, from since that point. There's the creation. There's the fall. There's the curse. And what does God say after He curses? Rather than ending it all, folding it all up and starting over, He doesn't do that, does He? Which He could have. He said, if you eat this tree, you'll surely die. And rather than dying physically and eternally, they only die physically. And then God makes a promise to Eve. And there's a seed that's going to come from the woman. It's a prophecy. It hasn't happened yet. Now, Eve expected it to happen right then. And so she names her first child. I've gotten a man from the Lord. I think this is the one that's coming. And obviously we see that unfold very clearly. It's not the one. You have Cain and you have Abel. See how bad the fall was, and you can still see God's promise. And, and then you go on from Noah, and, and 
how wicked it was, and God destroys the earth, and then the Tower of, of Babel, and, and then you, the line of, 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 of Abraham comes along. From the tents of Shem will come blessings. So out of one of the sons of Abraham, that promise continues along. And guess who is from the, the line of, of, of Shem? Well, it's, it's Abraham's father, or Abram's father, and so then we find it's going to come from one of Noah's sons and who it is, and now we find out his name. It's going to come through through Abram, who has then got a, an unconditional covenant made with him, that a seed's going to come from Abram, now it called Abraham, and it's going to be the promised one. And he's going to come, that seed's going to come well after either one of them can have children, well beyond human ability. The seed will, will come. And then from Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, to all of Jacob's wicked sons, and then you find Joseph. And then Joseph ends up in Egypt, and they go into Egypt as a family of about 70 people, and it's God's incubator. And when they come out of Egypt, even though they come, they fall under hardship, they're there about 400 years, they fall under hardship, God uses Egypt in order to, in order to grow them into a great nation. And they come out. Several million, God raises up Moses, the deliverer, and leads them out and leads them back to the promised land, the land that, that God promised to, to Abraham. And they come into the promised land, and now God is, is going to be their God, and He's going to be, uh, they're, they're going to be His people. And so the promise is yet to come, and so the law and all the ceremonies are there to regulate a holy God in the midst of an unholy people. And what are all the sacrifices about? What's Passover about? What is all of that about? These are all shadows and prophecies until the seed comes, right? There's a throne that's going to come. There's a king even after they go in there. After they go in and, and they end up, they get the commandments. And after Moses and Moses dies and then Joshua and and then you go into the dark ages, if you will, and then they cry out for a king and after the after the prophets and Saul and, and now you have David that has that comes along and then the kingdom gets divided, goes up and down and up and down until a period of silence where there is no prophet, there is no there is no revelation, and after several hundred years, behold there's one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist. And he is there to prepare God's people for the coming one. The prophecy that was given a long time ago. And he's still fulfilling that prophecy. And he's saying, there's one coming after me. And I'm not worthy to unloose his, his sandals. He's greater than I. He must increase, I must decrease. And how's he preparing? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're not earning righteousness yourself through the law or through the ceremonies. You need righteousness. You need that alien righteousness that will come to you only through the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised one. And it's a spirit of prophecy. And then that same Jesus comes and fulfills prophecy. What does Jesus say whenever he comes when John sees him? Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And he gets down in the water and basically says, baptize me. And John says, you need to baptize me, right? And Jesus says, fulfill all righteousness. He steps forward as the substitute for Israel. And as the substitute for Israel, he's baptized. And what does God declare from heaven? 
This is my beloved Son in whom I'm satisfied. I'm well pleased in Him. I'm not pleased with Israel. I'm not pleased with Brian Farrell. I'm not pleased with you. But I am pleased with Jesus. And you better be thankful and you should be glad that God is pleased with Jesus. Because you get the credit of His righteousness to your account. And so do I by faith alone. And Jesus fulfills all prophecy. He walks on the earth, doesn't He? He never sins. He accomplishes exactly what the Old Testament says. He fulfills exactly what Isaiah 61 says will take place. What he says in Nazareth when he reads the great Isaiah scroll, Isaiah 61. He says, this day this has been fulfilled in your ears. Proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Free the captives. He's fulfilling everything that the Bible says, the prophecy says. He comes from Bethlehem, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Nazareth. Filling Old Testament prophecy. And then he dies, lays down his life, goes as a lamb to the slaughter, and he opens not his mouth, just as Isaiah 53 prophesies. He's buried, he raises from the dead, just as Isaiah 53 prophesies. He ascends into heaven, just as Isaiah 53 prophesies. He establishes his church, just as Jesus prophesies. The church will go to the utter, the utter ends of the earth, just as Jesus proclaims. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. And it's still going on and on. And you know what else Jesus prophesied? He's coming again for His church. And that's what's going to happen one day. And when that happens, the bridegroom will come for the bride and will be part of that great celebration that will begin. And it will spill over from heaven into earth in the millennial kingdom, and then we'll all be gathered around the throne. And the prophecy of Jesus Christ, Old and New Testament, has the exact same theme, and that's your testimony. You hold the testimony of Jesus. You believe all those prophecies. You believe what Jesus said He would do, and what He said He did, and what He promised in the future. And you worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. Jesus Christ is not only the major theme of Scripture, He's the central figure of prophecy. He's the coming one in the Old Testament. And all who look forward to Him by faith were saved. He's the one who has come and fulfilled the demand of justice, and He made atonement, and He is the coming one who will return for His church and His people Israel. And we have the privilege to be His fellow slaves and worship Him. And we say, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray.